This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Jesse Pooji, and today's episode is a follow-up of last week's block episode covering Afterpay, the buy now, pay later giant. Founded in Sydney, Australia in 2015, Afterpay was a rapid success in the buy now, pay later market before being acquired by Block for $29 billion in 2021. To break down Afterpay, I'm joined by investor Joe Major. We cover how buy now, pay later compares to traditional credit cards, what differentiates Afterpay from direct peers, and how each player of its ecosystem benefits from its offering. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Afterpay. All right, Joe Mager, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into it. The business we're breaking down today is Afterpay. What is Afterpay? And give us a brief explanation of what it does. Afterpay is a business and a noun, but in Australia, it's also a verb. And it's a way that people pay for things. Afterpay was founded or launched back in 2015 in Australia. And from a standing start of essentially zero volume, managed to grow to reaching 20 million users over the next six years, and ended up selling the business to a price of about $29 billion to Square, which is now Block. It's a really remarkable Australian tech story. And as you may tell from the accent, was living in Sydney throughout this time. I got to see it up close, but it's been really fun to see the business scale from such humble beginnings into a very competitive industry with very entrenched solutions that consumers and merchants have been very happy with. But they managed to crack the nut by providing a lot of value to consumers and to merchants and able to scale very quickly. Yeah. And what exactly do they do? Afterpay is, they weren't the first buy now, pay later company, but they would be the leading buy now, pay later company. And most people, you hear that, some people would know what that is, but because buy now, pay later there's still only 2% of online transactions. It's still pretty small, new to a lot of investors. So buy now, pay later. It comes in many different flavors, but I'll give you the afterpay flavor. It's essentially a way for you to buy something online, just like you would if you're shopping at Urban Outfitters, you wanted to buy some Birkenstocks for $100, use afterpay to pay, you get your Birkenstocks, life is good. With afterpay versus a traditional PayPal offering or using your debit card, you pay in installments after that. So you pay a quarter on the first day, and then two weeks later, another quarter, and so on. What is different here is that you're getting the item up front, you're paying installments, and with Afterpay, there are no fees. So if you're a consumer who pays Afterpay back on time, and you do that by plugging your debit card or credit card, and 85% of the time it's debit into Afterpay, they just whip that out of your account every two weeks until ultimately they're paid back. So for 98% of installments on Afterpay, no one pays any fees at all. There are no hidden charges. And to contrast it, I think it's really helpful to look at credit cards as a different offering. So credit cards are issued by a bank and you have a pre-approved amount of money that you can spend up to. That is approved at the user level. Afterpay approves at the transaction level. So with a credit card, you get the card. Let's say you've got a $5,000 limit. You more or less spend it however you want. At the end of the month, if you don't pay it all back, you pay interest on that. Contrast that to Afterpay. First of all, at the transaction level, what that means is if you're buying those Birkenstocks on Urban Outfitters, what Afterpay is going to do is when you try to buy them, it's going to size up, okay, what is Jesse's history with us on buying? What is the history of shoppers on Urban Outfitters paying us back? What is the history for this type of shoe, the product itself? What's Jesse's browser? What zip code does he live in? Does he live with someone who has a bad history or a good history with us? All these different signals that they use in real time to make a decision on whether or not they're going to let you buy those shoes using Afterpay. Majority of time is a yes. You buy those shoes and, and you move on. 
a key thing here to in, in contrasting with credit is you can't roll forward debt with afterpay. So you buy your Birkenstocks, that gets paid back over six weeks. So your first quarter, and then you've got three fortnightly payments after that. That's two weeks for Americans. But from there, you're finished. With a credit card, if you don't pay afterpay back, you pay a small fee. They're very transparent about what those fees are, and they don't compound. They don't sell your debt to collector if you don't end up paying them back. They just stop you from buying new things. With a credit card, it keeps rolling and you pay heavy interest on it. I have so many questions. I mean, it's such a fascinating business already. Give us a sense for the scale. You mentioned that it was acquired for $29 billion. So what was the revenue, EBITDA, total transaction volume? Just give us a sense of how big Afterpay is. Probably put it yeah, in payment volume terms. So by the time the merger closed, they were doing about $20 billion a year in gross merchant volume. And they had 122,000 merchants on the platform and 19 million consumers. So for a business of its youth, pretty sizable. Now, again, a sense of scope, though, I would consider that an, an immense success for a startup in the payment space. And there's no shortage of companies who are trying to disrupt it. And to just flash back a little bit in time and how they achieved that, initially, I think the big insight was there are people who want to buy things and pay for them later in a different way than the current models allow. So it's not like credit cards didn't already exist. But Nick Molnar and Anthony Eisen, two co-founders of business, I think what they recognized was particularly millennials had an aversion to credit, but they still wanted budgeting tools and flexibility. And so that's what Afterpay ultimately offered. And that's where they started, was focusing on millennials leaning into fashion in particular, and then extending out into different verticals and, and moving into older groups of consumers. The founding story is an interesting one. I mean, it's only a seven-year-old company for that kind of GMV. Can you talk more about the founders, how they came up with the idea, some of the initial scaling? Just give us a sense of that story. Nick Molnar and Anthony Eisen, I think, are one of the more interesting founding duos that I've seen. Nick was in his mid-20s, working during the day by night, selling jewelry on eBay. And I've heard he was the largest jeweler on eBay in Australia at the time. He got to know Anthony, who was a neighbor, who was about 20 years older. Anthony had been the CIO of Guinness Pete, which wouldn't ring bells in America, but was a highly successful investment holding company in Australia. They got to know each other and Nick kind of had the spark of the idea. And what the two of them ultimately brought was different levels of expertise and energy and insight into helping to scale the business. Then different points along the way, they've held different roles and different titles, but it's very much been a partnership between them. Nick's probably been the creative spark and the one who did a lot of the push into the US. And I can speak to that. Anthony, a little more of the, as you would imagine, CIO of an investment holding company, communicated with investors, helping to shape capital allocation and strategy with the business. And flashback in time, how did they get to that scale? And to kind of talk through it of the lenses of their personalities, initially launching in Australia, very good initial traction. And why did they get that traction? Just to go back to the product. They got it because consumers liked the flexibility and straightforward approach and lack of BS fees that Afterpay brings. Why did merchants like it? Merchants like Afterpay because it boosts basket sizes. So the average order value is something like 20 to 40% larger, depending on what merchant you're talking about who uses Afterpay. So it's always a struggle to break into payments. But if you're bringing value to consumers and it's markedly better and to merchants, it generates inbound demand. And one of our early conversations with them, they actually told us that they were doing zero outbound marketing at the time. This was 2017. And it was all they could do to keep up with merchants who were calling them who wanted to get onboarded with the platform. So strong early success in Australia. But when they wanted to go abroad, they were very patient about it. They didn't jump first to the US. They jumped to New Zealand. Brother from another mother is across the Tasman. And their logic was, look, let's do this in a different but similar market. Let's tinker. Let's learn. Let's try to take some of the multinational customers we have here, go abroad. It's a smaller market. Let's not fall down face first trying to do an international launch. And I would say that's a bit of an Australian mindset, a little more risk aversion than what American companies and startups have. But they were patient. It worked very well. And then from there, they moved to the US, which is a much bigger market relying on some of the relationships they'd already built. And they had a VC partner who actually funded that. 
So Matrix provided in exchange for 20% of Afterpay US essentially the funding for them to have a go at it for a year, which turned out to work out very well for all parties later went into the UK, Canada. But throughout it, there was a lot of consistency and focus from Anthony and Nick around, we want to do this one thing really well, and we want to be deliberate, and we'll continue to extend out from that over time with different offerings, which compared to a lot of other players in the space, if you look at a Klarna, for example, it's a multi-tentacled Swedish business. It's almost hard to describe what Klarna does, whereas Afterpay is very straightforward. And I think a lot of that comes from Anthony and Nick. This whole buy now, pay later, were they the innovators? Were they the first ones to come up with it? And talk a little bit about the history of buy now, pay later. History will maybe regard them that way, but they weren't the first. So a firm, which was started by one of the PayPal mafia, one of the co-founders of PayPal, Matt Lepchen, started years before Afterpay. There's an Australian business called Zip that started before Afterpay as well. But Afterpay got bigger, faster. And I think it really boils down to the differentiation of the product. If you look at some of the other buy now, pay later companies, their product was essentially a classic financial product with interest and fees more or less baked in to a clean installment package. But to me, they looked like, and I think consumers read it this way, there's a lot of fine print and it's like, look, I think I'm more or less getting the same classic financial thing just with a different skin. I think Afterpay was an inversion where, yes, Afterpay is taking credit risk, but it was so simple and straightforward where, okay, I've got to pay back over six to eight weeks. There are no additional fees. So long as I pay back over time, there's no interest. The fees, you tell me what the fees are. You tell me when I'm going to make these payments. And I think just the simplicity of it really resonated and is what allowed them to differentiate with consumers and ultimately brought the merchants along as well. So I want to get into the depths of Afterpay. Before we do that, just for people listening, maybe you could provide Joe like a FinTech 101, how the payments models tend to work, how some of these different businesses make money, and then we'll double click on what Buy Now, Pay Later does in particular or what Afterpay does in particular. To go back in time, a lot of people, even today, but a lot of founders approach FinTech. The mindset here is this is an industry, you call it, payments, personal finance, banking at large, that moves slowly. There's not much innovation. Fees are high. Customers feel like they're locked in. They pay a lot in interest. There's lots of red tape. There are lots of hidden fees and charges. And it's a low trust environment. It feels like a natural place for people to attempt to disrupt. And there have been some successes over time. PayPal itself, many years ago, for instance, big initial kick down the door with online payments, but they did. But in a somewhat bitter irony, I think what has happened is most fintechs come in with the intention of completely disrupting the establishment. And then they learn that the establishment is so tightly integrated and actually, for the most part, works pretty well that they need to partner with some of these big players rather than compete with them. I'll use Afterpay a little bit here as an example. I don't think there was ever an intent to disrupt per se payments. And sometimes you hear people say things like, oh, well, should Afterpay or should Visa and MasterCard be worried? And I'm like, well, no, actually they're strategic partners because all the payments that flow through Afterpay go through cards. And those conversations initially were probably touch and go because there was a phase where Visa and MasterCard were like, well, I'm not quite sure how to think about these guys is possibly a competitor. How do I feel about them working with our customers? But eventually they come to realize, well, Afterpay works well for us because there's more transaction volume and they're approaching a different clientele and there are more actual transactions that flow through, which is good for our business. And having a healthy relationship for Afterpay works as well. But ultimately the spirit of FinTech is trying to bring more flexibility to consumers. I would say Afterpay has definitely succeeded in that. To that, if you look at Australia, the number of credit cards that are currently live in Australia is the lowest it's been since 2006, even though the population's a quarter larger and far wealthier since then. And the driving force behind that, it's been two things. One is millennials having different tastes around debt, but a lot of it has been afterpay because a lot of people who might have gotten a credit card before are like, well, look, I don't need that. 
I don't really want that. I want something where I have more of a budgeting tool and more control over my spending. And I think that's something that the team there should be proud of. Let's go deeper into kind of this ecosystem and all these various players just to kind of map it out for everybody who's listening out there. I think for the buyer, it's the most straightforward. I used to walk in with my credit card for the Birkenstocks, pay 100 bucks, and get on my way. And that was either with cash, a credit card, a debit card, something like that. Now I walk in and because of Afterpay, I can pay $25 up front, $25 in two weeks, $25 in two weeks, $25 in two weeks. Let's just go player by player to maybe to the merchant next, walk through what happens in all these situations. What happens to the credit card, like the visas, the MasterCards, the credit card or the debit card? I just want to understand how it affects it. And then I'm also curious then to understand the economics of who makes money or how does money get made in that transaction? You could think of Afterpay as... When you really boil it down, it's a payment tool that consumers use, and it's a payment processor. You can think of it as very similar to PayPal in that sense. Let's just sidestep the installment part, but similar to PayPal, plus installments. And yes, PayPal has a pay later aspect that we can talk about later. There are a couple of key things that are separate. So with an average transaction, the merchant keeps about 96%. 4% goes to Afterpay. What does Afterpay get for the 4%? on the transaction value. Well, the merchant gets that Afterpay covers the payment processing costs. They have financing costs that they themselves have to pay. There are lost rates. So not everyone pays Afterpay back. They do collect late fees. However, they don't cover the losses. To that point, the dream Afterpay customer is someone who pays back on time all the time. Unlike your credit card company where the dream customer is someone who keeps a rolling balance and and pays them more in fees. The other aspect there is chargebacks do not flow back to the merchant as well. The merchant is paying more to Afterpay than they would to other payment options, but they're getting quite a bit more for it, including larger average order values. Again, that can range from 20 to 40%, depending on the merchant you're talking about. But there's something else there that is not as obvious that I think people miss, which is that Afterpay sends a lot of business to the merchants. So from Afterpay's app, known web store where a lot of people go, they send about a million leads a day to merchants. And those are highly qualified leads. They're people who already have Afterpay and they're looking at Afterpay's shop directory because they want to shop. They want to spend some money. They're curious. And... You know, a million leads a day going out is pretty prolific. So what Afterpay has actually found is that with a lot of merchants, Nick told me this story years ago, but they occasionally get approached by someone who'd say, well, look, we're paying you this all-in-one fee and we'd be interested in unbundling that. But when they break it down and say, let's just make this one side is just payment processing. The other is we're going to make it around the number of leads we send because Afterpay, because of the one who can see where leads are going and they know whether that same user actually bought and how much they bought, it works out that Afterpay probably would be paid more if you had just the payment process inside plus the leads they're sending. So the all-in-one bundle is really a more cost-effective solution for a lot of merchants. And that's pretty different as far as the economics for most payment businesses. And I guess Give a little more nuance too around the merchants themselves. They like the simplicity of this. They like getting paid upfront. It gives them the ability to offer something like a lay-by offering, but without having it on their books, makes it a good bit cleaner. Let's put the leads aside for just a second. But if I'm a merchant, I typically pay around 2% to process a credit card transaction. I pay double of that, but earlier you said you get 20 to 40% more average order value. Let's put the lead suffer aside for just a second. Is that the core value prop for the merchant? Yes. Yeah, that's it very directly. So again, depending on the merchant, you're looking at something like a 20, 40% uplift in the average order. Those customers tend to shop more often. So you're paying a higher margin per piece to afterpay, but you're getting a lot more total value that's coming through. The other thing is within Australia, this is not true so much in America, probably the UK, but within Australia, where Afterpay has become a verb and is such a large platform, you're now in a place where if you're not offering Afterpay, you're competitively starting to trip yourself up. And so we saw examples, um, ASOS in particular, they were not accepting Afterpay while competitors were. They started stumbling a little bit 
And when we asked ASOS uh, at a conference once, why aren't you guys accepting Afterpay? And their answer was, it was too expensive. You know, they charge a lot more than the other people we use. But their competitors were, and they were taking share off them. And they eventually acquiesced and started accepting it, just meet customers on their terms as much as the uplift on sales. The lead gen side of it, can you talk a little bit more about how does Afterpay actually drive leads to people? My understanding is most people just see it at checkout and go, okay, I'll make payments on this. Can you talk a little bit about that and how they've cultivated that? The big difference here between PayPal is the cleanest comparison. I think a lot of people listening might have the PayPal app. It's not a shopping-driven app, whereas the Afterpay app and the Afterpay store directory, but basically their website, it's all about steering people towards relevant merchants. And you just kind of go shopping through to see what merchants are available for using Afterpay. And I think it says a lot about the brand affinity that people go directly to Afterpay to say, okay, where can I go use this? Now, it may also be that they're not as big and ubiquitous as a PayPal. To talk about scale a little bit, PayPal, 1.25 trillion in total payment volume last year. So it's a completely different scale of business to what Afterpay is. You don't really have to think too hard about whether a merchant accepts PayPal, whereas Afterpay, it's a much smaller number. But nonetheless, they've cultivated this consumer base, this user base who goes to them looking for places where they can shop. And I think part of it is when they initially started, Afterpay was focused on fashion. And they chose fashion because it was good entrance ramp into millennials, but it was also attractive from a credit risk standpoint. So the ideal item that Nick would talk about is purple polka dot dress. So if you buy an iPhone or some consumer goods that sometimes have high fraud rates, they don't want high fraud rates. Fraud rates for a purple polka dot dress of a certain size are very low. There's not much of a resale market for those. And so that's why initially they started with fashion. But I think that also maybe is a, a fortunate, happy coincidence was a clientele of people who do more perusing and shopping and browsing. And that's where their app added value for them. The fact that they have a consumer app seems pretty rare for a payments business and pretty differentiating for them. Can you talk about how they went about building that and how they've created that consumer orientation? From the outset, they were focused on fashion. And that was for two big reasons. The first is that fashion was very millennial-centric. Younger people tend to be more thoughtful about fashion. And that was their core clientele that they wanted to get after. They thought the brand and product would resonate with. But the other was it was better from a credit standpoint. When you look across what products have the highest rates of fraud, they're things that are fairly ubiquitous, they're high value, and could be consumer electronics, for example, that are easily resold. Whereas to use the example, Nick always points to a purple polka dot dress of a certain size is not likely to be resold online or be a hot good. Fraud rates were consistently much lower with fashion. And so that's part of the reason they started there. Now, they didn't move out over time progressively into additional verticals. It got to the point that by the time we left Sydney, our old dentist accepted Afterpay. They managed to do that very well. I think it's somewhat of a happy coincidence as far as the app and their ability to generate leads coming through, I think the nature of people who are very into shopping and fashion is you like to browse. And so I think that probably led to Afterpay users using the app and the online experience to find and discover new places to shop. If they'd started with hardware, (laughs) tools, or something like that, I don't know that they would have gotten the same result out of that, but it worked. And to their credit, They cultivated that and invested in it and made sure it was something that users were aware of. Their ability to drive traffic to merchants now, you were talking about it a little bit earlier, but they don't charge for that explicitly. That's just sort of part of being a partner to theirs. Yeah, that's all part of the package. And so people talk about fees with Afterpay. You know, they look at average fees, which by the way, it's around 4%. But for enterprise customers, it's suspected that large enterprises more in the twos, small merchants is more like six. It blends out to around four. People have questioned whether fees are sustainable. Over the long arc of time, all fees within payments are trending downward. So that's not unique to Afterpay. It's true of virtually everyone in the space. There is fee compression. 
I think we'd all generally agree as consumers, that's a good thing. That said, still a very big profit pool that is growing. Afterpay's place within that, I think, is relatively strong. I do think fees will moderately get pressed, but because of the value they bring in terms of leads, because of the boost in average order value, it puts them in a good place. And there was an anecdote once that I heard where I think the common thing people assume is, are retailers trying to negotiate for better fees? And I'm sure that there are ones who do, but we've also been told by the company early days that they got approached by some merchants who said, look, we want to get a long-term deal because we think we're getting so much value from this. We're concerned you're going to raise prices on us. And I think it really says a lot about what they bring for the merchants. Makes tons of sense. Let's double-click even further into their PL. You mentioned there were about $20 billion in GMV when they were acquired. Just to keep the number simple, let's just assume a $10 billion GMV. But I want to walk through. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. 4% rough fees across the board. You're saying it's blended across a bunch of merchants. So that's about $400 million. What are the cost of sales? Because it's an interesting business where they have to take on the credit card processing and credit risk and all those buckets. And I'm just curious to break those out a little bit better and understand them. The two core ones are your processing cost and your financing cost, your losses. And they vary by market. Let's say that you've got 4% on the top. When you strip out each of those, historically, they've averaged around 2% left over. Now that can fluctuate. It's been as high as around 25 But the business... You would look at that and say, there's not a lot of room. I think historically, where people have been concerned about afterpay, and and I was as well early days with recessions, was how does a business like this navigate an environment with a rocky economic picture or higher rates of interest? Because if you look at the 4% and you've got two left over, you start looking at that and you see interest rates spiking higher and it's pretty natural to wonder about how much that spread is going to get compressed. But I think there are a lot of levers there that can be moved. And over time, I think the long arc here is favorable. So to kind of break them down individually, if you look at processing costs, much like Afterpay's top line fees are probably going to get squeezed over time. I think their fees themselves for processing will probably go down. With scale, it certainly helps. Financing costs are another one that's interesting because on the one hand, there's a cyclical aspect where your funding comes from different sources. You've got cash on the balance sheet, you've got receivables, warehouses, you've got medium-term debt, long-term debt, different forms of duration that are underpinning that. But long story short, lower rates and isolation are better for them. But what I would keep in mind is that the amount of turnover with the book is very different from what you'd see with a lot of other credit providers. So if you think of a, an Australian bank that issues a 30-year mortgage, they keep that on their books. You've got pretty long duration with your book. With Afterpay, the book turns over about 13 times a year. And I think this is kind of one of the big misunderstandings with the model in different ways that people don't appreciate is that while if you have a 1% interest rate change across the board and, and the rates move percentage point higher, yes, that's a headwind. However, that's essentially sliced into 13 because they're turning over the book so quickly. And a question you might have is, why is it turning over every four weeks instead of six to eight? And it's because a lot of people prepay. In that cyclical sense, rates moving higher is a drag. But in a secular sense, longer term, the acquisition, and to kind of bring it back to what was square and now was block, they've got a much bigger balance sheet, lower cost of capital, and should be able to help lower those financing costs for afterpay as they go. And the last key part is losses. So sometimes they just don't get paid back. Now they have late fees that net against that. But at the end of the day, sometimes for whatever reason, afterpay doesn't get repaid and they get left holding the bill while you still have your broken stocks. They don't sell your debt onto a debt collector. They just eat it. Now, one thing that's really important here is understanding the sources of where those losses are most frequent. New users are the biggest drag on losses. So once someone has been on Afterpay for a while, they're pretty consistent. They pay back. Afterpay knows what their history is. But most losses come from newer users who don't have an established history. They get weeded out pretty quickly. What that leads to is when Afterpay enters new markets, They've got much higher loss rates there than they do in more established markets. So if you kind of look at the curves across the different markets, 
you'd see in Australia, they have incredibly high repayment rates and much better scaled economics. They're still growing at very healthy rates because they're still getting new users, but the existing users are more seasoned and they have more merchants to spend with. Whereas if you look at the newer markets, you've got higher loss rates. But if history is any guide, they should trend down over time. The other aspect of that in the secular sense, as after pay gets bigger, they have a far bigger transaction base with which to make smarter decisions and credit risk decisions. I want to talk a little bit more about credit. Before we do that, in this example, you know, we made up it was a 10 billion in GMV, 400 million in fees, 200 million in expenses. Just roughly, how does that 200 million break out between the payments processing, the credit risk, and the interest? If you've got 4% on the top, within that gross losses, they run at about 1% of underlying sales or GMV. Past that, now that gets netted down some by the fees that offset that, but call it roughly 1%. And then past that, your variable cost, which they lump your financing costs along with your transaction costs, run at about 1.2. So that leaves you about 2.1 at the bottom or call it two. Got it. So the losses are a pretty meaningful part of their cost of sales. They are. And I think that over time, structurally, you'll see that fall. Again, if you kind of think about cohort and variability to get back to the transactional nature of this. So if we go back to the COVID crash, for example, where massive recession unfolds, we were concerned about how the business would navigate through that. But what gave us confidence was unlike a bank that might have a ton of long duration exposure on its balance sheet, Afterpay could, within the span of four weeks, almost entirely recast its existing book of business just by tightening the screws and standards around new users, certain product profiles, certain geographies. You could just not quite immediately, but within the span of a month, make your book more conservative around the edges with the users that you know by far have a higher propensity of not paying you back. That was what allowed them to navigate that environment far better than just about anyone, including me, would have expected. Earlier, you mentioned all these signals, how it's transaction-oriented, not person-oriented. Is there anything surprising or unique? I mean, the turning over the book is super interesting. Within a month or two, they can have a materially different credit profile. What are some of the other interesting things they do or the transaction-level financing allows them to do that other financial institutions can't do? Well, they keep a lot of that closely guarded. But what I would say that is interesting about it is there's this healthy tension at the kind of the micro level. And this is true of any credit issuer, but finding this balance of how much do I let someone get away with and what kind of exposure are we willing to take? And what's different here, I think, is that if you're a credit card issuer and someone applies for a card and you just reject them, you kind of move on as a consumer and you don't really think much about it. With Afterpay, it's possible that You could have an existing account be approved for one item, but possibly not for another. And because it's all done at the transaction level, that can be interesting. Someone might be offended if they're trying to buy something and they get rejected. And then the push there as well is that the merchant, of course, they have a bias towards things getting approved because they're not the one who's paying for it if it doesn't ultimately get paid back. So there is an interesting, healthy tension there that they've kind of experimented with over time. And they're coy about the approval rates, suspect for competitive reasons, but it's something that they can play with around the edges. Can you talk a little bit more about, if you're the CEO of this business, how do you grow it? What are those growth levers? And maybe some of the tension that exists with things like credit risk as you think about growing a business like this. The most stark lever that sits on Nick's desk is to loosen standards. So you'd be thoughtful about it, but you could do things like, look, we're going to be a little more relaxed with this retailer for this type of profile, et cetera. The goal being, and the mindset of, look, we want to grow faster. We're willing to take an experiment with a little more loss. In exchange for, we're growing faster for both sides of our network and viewing losses from new users, almost your CAC, essentially, your your customer acquisition costs, because you know you're going to have some who don't work But you have ones that do. And as the consumer side of the network gets bigger and you drive more revenue from merchants, ultimately, you're going to bring in more merchants and that's going to spin the flywheel faster. There is that healthy tension. 
And I think there are some windows where it makes sense for them to push a little harder. And there are windows where they may want to tap the brakes a bit. But what's nice is because the book turns over so quickly and you're dealing with a pretty high volume number of new consumers is you can dabble and experiment a lot. Whereas if this was a business selling, if you're doing 30-year loans, for example, or selling workers' comp policies, these things can be on the books for a long time. And if someone, you might've heard of the expression, IBG, YBG, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. With credit, there's a risk that there's a mindset around that. You have underwriters or whoever is the issuer internally who are willing to be flexible because it drives growth today and they won't be around. But the nice thing here is you get almost relatively, as far as credit standards go, immediate feedback on what your changes are doing. So it's fair to say that if growth and spinning the flywheel is a major strategic goal, then they're going to be looser and they have been looser than if the goal was to maximize margins or if your goal was to pay a dividend. So to frame that locally, Australian investors generally do not have as much of a risk tolerance as American investors do. And even at Afterpay, while they did continually come back to market to raise more capital to grow, at the same time, they never went as hard as I think a lot of US companies probably would have at different scales. And that's partly because Afterpay was public at an earlier stage. There's not as strong a venture capital scene in Australia as there is in the US. So Afterpay was listed only a few years after it was born. Whereas if you look at Klarna, Klarna's been like 17 years on since it was founded and still a private business over in Europe. So, so long as you've got a shareholder base that will support it and you can do it in a disciplined way, then I think it makes sense for them to be aggressive around standards. But it's a tough thing that they need to continually adjust and recalibrate. This little PL we're making, it's about 2.1% in cost. So, say in this example, 180, 190 million is falling below cost of sales. What are the other major things they're spending money on and investing in? Afterpay is a tech company and a finance company. So, depending on how you want to frame it, when you look at the unit economics, you talk about it. People tend to talk about the business as a tech company. But when you look at the unit economics, it's very much credit driven. But that said, in terms of hiring and scaling, a lot of their costs are developers and the classic stack of people that you'd be looking to be growing a business with. They invest a lot in data, then a lot in new markets and supporting launches in those markets. So it's a pretty broad-based investment across data, marketing, and scaling and the development tools around that new products. Now, where Afterpay has been very patient with new products, we had conversations with them years ago where we floated looking at banking. So not necessarily being a bank themselves, but having banking relationships with customers since 85% of them were using debit and they had really high NPS scores. A logical question was, why don't you have some sort of savings product? And at the time, they pushed back on it and essentially said, that's something for the future. But right now, we just really want to stick to our netting and, and do one thing really well. Now they have branched out. They actually have a savings product. They have a loyalty program. They've moved from just Oz down under to New Zealand, the US, pushing to UK. They're pushing into Spain, pushing into Canada. They've got their hands full as far as new launches. But I think they've been relatively patient with that. Within the umbrella of Block opens some different angles with that, where if you're Jack Dorsey with a big balance sheet, you probably don't mind if they go a little bit harder with that. And with Afterpay, probably having a little less direct scrutiny because it's part of a larger payments business today, it's probably an appetite to go hard. What they're also looking to do is invest and combine the business. Well, not combine. People don't like the word synergy, but find synergies between Afterpay and the rest of the Block suite. So part of the reason Block bought Afterpay wasn't just because it was the leader in Buy Now, Pay Later, but it was very complimentary. And we'd always had the view that it was logical for Square then or PayPal to buy the business because they had these huge bases, millions of merchants with whom they could plug in Afterpay. And the day that the merger was finalized and went live, Afterpay and Square Block announced that all Square sellers were able to start using Afterpay, at least in the US. So they'll continue to invest aggressively into new markets, new markets, new products. 
since we're there already, I guess the acquisition, how did that come together? Maybe just to give some historical context, what were the timing of that? This question around synergies, what were the major synergies that both sides saw in being one organization? The strategic rationale to us, it had always been clear that someone could, when I say someone, PayPal or then Square, could bring an afterpay, plug them into these huge merchant bases, and just through their scale, dramatically improve the value of the business, but also improve financing costs as well, improve loss rates because they have presumably better credit decision engines and certainly more scale and understanding of consumers. So just from a revenue and from a cost standpoint, it made a lot of sense to us. And I could see why Square was attracted. I think Afterpay was the logical target for them as well, because even though there are other buy now, pay later companies, as I'd said before, Afterpay started later, but got bigger despite that and had proven they could scale into different geographies, had a clean product that was resonating with consumers and merchants and, and a leadership team to go with it. And Ning Molnar is now leading the Afterpay business within Square. So within Time Horizons, Afterpay had been growing very quickly. You go back to 2017, 2018 was when they were really posting breakout growth, 800% year-on-year kind of growth rates. And that definitely will get you some headlines. But I don't think PayPal and Square were probably taking it as a credible, particularly PayPal, thinking of them as a, a competitor or threat at that time. But by the time that there was a firm consensus that by now, pay later was not going to disappear and that Afterpay and Affirm and these guys. Now, there are a lot, plenty of also rands, by the way, who are subscale and I don't think are going to be well, but that the leaders were going to thrive and stay. They'd gotten to a place where the bill for buying them got pretty large. And I don't think PayPal really had the stomach for it, but Square clearly did. Square courted them and I think gave them the impression of what I'd imagine there was a lot of flirting going on for a while, but my understanding is there was a bit of pressure and to commit to a deal and making it happen. And it was an all-stock deal, which I think plays to the mentality that Nick and Anthony and Afterpay Cheryl have, which is they believe in the business, they want to be in payments, they want to be in disruption within it. And so that deal was brought about. It was announced last year. It closed in January. Now, the deal value from the point where it announced to where it closed was roughly half because there was a huge pullback in the value of Square shares. But I don't think that anybody's too sore about that. And now, interestingly, Square, well, Block, trades on the ASX as well as being in the US as a way for Australian investors to not have a large tax event. They could stay invested. Got it. You kind of mentioned a lot of competitors and some of that situation there. We haven't yet unpacked that. On its face, it doesn't seem like a particularly differentiated business. You've mentioned Klarna, you mentioned PayPal, Affirm. I mean, there's a lot of people who do this. So what is it about Afterpay that's allowed them to be so successful and differentiate themselves? When you first look at it, it's hard to understand why. And the first time I looked at it, there's this flashback to 2016. It just wasn't clear to me what problem they were solving. But to be fair to them, I think that the growth rates on both sides of the network proved it out. I think it just gets back to one was focus. So for PayPal, they now have what is a not insignificant pay letter business. It's on a $13 billion GMV annual run rate. So not small compared to Afterpay's 20, but that's also against 1.25 trillion. So within PayPal, buy now, pay later is still very small. I think they were just late to appreciating that it was something that resonated with consumers. I think it also had something to do with the fact that PayPal itself had taken credit risk off its books a couple of years before, and they probably weren't in a big rush to reintroduce that after telling that story and having that narrative with investors. A firm, I think, an interesting one because it started in a bigger market with one of the most respected people in payments, Max Selection leading the business, and was very well funded, but for whatever reason, just didn't achieve the same scale. And I'm guessing, I'm hypothesizing that merchants weren't getting the same degree of value and that from the consumer side, a firm was a more clunky, complicated product. 
You could pay things back over time horizons. There was embedded interest. There was just more to have wrap your head around, whereas Afterpay was clean. And if I had to say another one, if you look at Zip, which isn't on the radar of most American investors, but Zip is an Australian competitor, started before Afterpay. But again, they kind of had a complicated multi-product suite. In some ways, was the classic repackaging of traditional finance. They also would say, they did say at the time, that they were more discerning with running credit checks. And so this is something I didn't talk about earlier, but Afterpay does not run a classic credit check with taking on new users. They're taking these different signals that they can pick up on you to make an educated guess when you're a new user on what your risk is. But a lot of competitors, maybe not a lot, but some like Zip would run a more classic bank-driven credit check. Now, on the one hand, that leads to lower loss rates. On the other, it leads to slower growth. And I think it's reasonable to question whether as much as you want to point to traditional credit models and credit scores as being indicative of whether someone's going to pay you back, if you're after pay, we know your zip code, we know you're using a certain browser, we know you're shopping in a certain type of store. Honestly, we probably got a lot of signal here in addition to other things that can tell us enough on whether we can take a risk with your buying a $100 pair of shoes. If you stick around, you could be a really valuable customer for us over many years. And if you don't, we're not going to eat too much on this. It's contained. Typically with these businesses where there's a lot of competitors and it's hard to tell what differentiates, they're building some kind of a flywheel. Like, What is the flywheel in this business and how have they built it better than others? I think the flywheel, I'm sure plenty of people listening are familiar with network effects. I'm not going to drag on too much about what they are. But I think with Afterpay in particular, what made the network work in theory, no, we just need a bunch of consumers and we need merchants. And if we just get more merchants, we get more consumers and it's all straightforward. But the hard part is actually getting them. And especially within payments, if you go back to 2015 when this launched, it wasn't obvious that there was a problem that needed solving. Merchants already had a number of payment options that they'd onboarded, were integrated in their website, customers used. And customers already had plenty of ways to pay online. I think what made the flywheel work was just the clear value prop to both sides of the network where consumers felt like, hey, I can pay this back over six to eight weeks with no fees and it's not going to turn into this revolving door of credit. I'll give that a try. And for the merchant, it was, wow, this is really boosting my average order value. And you mean I can take a little bit of risk off my plate while I'm at it? Okay, cool. And then later, they come to appreciate the number of leads getting sent their way. And I just think the combination of those things proved to be really powerful and just continued to feed on themselves over time. One thing we haven't really touched on yet is regulation. There's the classic credit card documentation you get with endless large numbers and this and that and all this disclosure. Does regulation play a role in this buy now, pay later space? And if not, will it? Talk to us about regulation. Regulation has been something that has been a constant part of the journey and discussion with Afterpay. And I don't see that going away with buy now, pay later, because you're talking about, while it's still only 2% of online transactions, it's growing very quickly. And when you're talking about a lot of consumers and a lot of money and risk and fees, regulators will stick their nose in and poke around. With Afterpay, it just grew from a standing start to having ballpark 15% of the population using it within a few years. That's a huge amount of change, a short amount of time. So that did attract a lot of attention from regulators. But I think a lot of bears, the business always assumed that would be a bad thing. But I think what happened was when regulators got under the hood at a high level, I think what they found was, okay, so let me get this straight. 98% of installments are paid back. Yes. And 85% of these roughly are plugged into debit cards. So it's not like this is a massive kiting scheme where you're just allowing people to infinitely defer payments. And you don't let people buy new things if they're late and there's no interest. They talk to merchants and merchants are pretty happy and growing quickly. And then you step back and look at the alternative. Just size them up. The average Australian credit card has a balance of $1,300 rolling from one period to the next. The average interest rate on that is 20%. And to the average account value outstanding in afterpay, which is ballpark 250, interest payments alone that Australians are paying a year exceeds the average rolling balance of what they owe to afterpay. And so 
I think when you give it a little bit of a closer inspection, you realize people sometimes look at it and say, oh, it's letting people buy things that they otherwise wouldn't. Considering most of them pay back easily without a problem and mechanisms like that, like credit cards, existed for decades. I think they find it's not quite as scary or daunting. And Afterpay has navigated those conversations well. I think Anthony Eisen being such a steady hand probably helped a lot with that. They try to be genuinely transparent. I think another thing that has helped is both from their actions, but also the seasoning of the user or the consumer base is that late fees as a percentage of revenue has fallen considerably. So that had been in the 20s, call it three, four years ago, that's now south of 10%. And it's a combination of caps on late fees. Also that as the user consumer base seasons, you just have fewer people paying late. But optically, it, it certainly looks a lot better when you can say, look, over 90% of our revenue is from merchants, not consumers. It's almost like the better business model the regulators even appreciate it because if it's better for consumers, they also sort of appreciate it. When you start to look forward for the business, obviously it's owned by Square now, but I guess we were in a vision independently or we can maybe include Square in this question. When you think about the next five years, if Afterpay ends up being bigger and better than even your wildest expectations, what are the couple, two or three things that went right for the business, both in terms of the macro environment as well as execution? For execution, I would say they cross-sold it really well. And they were able to have a clean experience and provide a compelling case to Square merchants and Square sellers for integrating Afterpay. They also invested heavily in building that brand out within the US and integrated it well into Cash App. So I think from an execution standpoint, those are big hooks. I think a lot of growth is already there as far as They just continue to bring new merchants. But as users use Afterpay more over time, what they see is a new user for Afterpay today might use it a few times in a year. But someone who's been with the platform four plus years uses it something like 29 times a year. I think there's plenty of growth that's already baked in here. But I think Square slash Block should be able to accelerate that. If they're not, I would consider that a big fail as far as execution. From a macro standpoint, a strong economy is good for them. Higher interest rates are probably what I would consider the most interesting risk in the room right now. The higher interest rates do get sliced up 13 times over because the turnover of the book is only four weeks. So your annualized rate gets cut into the little fractions with each transaction. But that said, there's no question that higher rates is a headwind. Now, the give and take with that is that you can say well, higher interest rates in isolation and all things equal, but, but the, all things aren't all equal. I guess the trade-off there is you have higher interest rates because of inflation, but at the same time, average order values are larger, and that helps to offset some of the interest rate expense. But I would say the biggest macro things would be if you have stagflation, that essentially would be the biggest soft underbelly to the business. I think in that scenario, what you probably would see is not necessarily loss rates growing quickly. I think you'd see new user growth curtailing pretty quickly in order to contain losses, which would be very effective. I think your margins would hold up well. It's just that your absolute dollar growth, profit growth in dollar terms wouldn't be growing quite like shareholders would like to see. That sounds like the square acquisition between more merchants and then more customers, like you said. And then obviously, once someone uses it, then it's like probably a pretty addicting thing to the customer lifetime value goes up a lot. What about the flip here? In the next five years, if Afterpay does not perform performs below expectations. What happened to the business? Why will it not work out in the next several years? I do think that the risk here is Square slash Block. They've got a lot going on. And we actually sold the last of our stake in Afterpay. The deal was announced, partly because our thesis had played out, but also because it's a big, hairy, complex company. There are many different business lines. And even within it now, you've got Cash App, You've got Afterpay. How do those things play out over time? I know they should be synergistic, but as we know in big organizations, politics happens and there are gives and takes and Afterpay on its own was very focused. As part of a much bigger business, is that focus still there? Is that motivation still there for a lot of the senior leaders? I mean, Nick and and Anthony, particularly Nick, still own a, a truckload of stock and their fortunes tied up in block. But nonetheless those incentives have probably 
changed. And it wouldn't surprise me if they struggle to continue to find, from a strategic standpoint, interest in the business and just continuing to support it after they get the low-hanging fruit of the integrations into the rest of this. You talked about credit risk and interest rate risk. Are there ways that that could turn really south for them? It could. I mean, in a severe stagflation situation, I would say yes. And I think you get into some really interesting strategic questions at that point where you start asking, do we have the right price deck? Do we have the right, both in terms of percentages, but also the structure? Do we need to unbundle some of this? Those could be interesting conversations, but their ability to pull levers, at least on the loss side, is something that will give them a lot of padding and protection, but it would come at the cost of growth. For a business where you've got a shareholder base of block, who they want to see growth, they're not too focused on the bottom line, they're focused on top line. And while some investors would be happy to see margins continue to be solid, but after pay within block, but if New Year's of growth really fell off the side of the table, they probably wouldn't love seeing that. So you know, I think stagflation is just the biggest structural risk. Yeah, it makes sense. The last question we ask everyone on the show, where do you go to learn more? So I think the first question is, if you're an entrepreneur and executive listening, what's the big lesson? What's the takeaway from Afterpay? Then if you're an investor, and then last but not least, people want to learn more about this business and maybe payments and buy now, pay later, generally, where would you guide them to? Great resource is a book called Buy Now, Pay Later. And it's by Johnny Shapiro, who's a great reporter for the Australian Financial Review. But it's a good history of the business. With Afterpay, as far as lessons and insights from the story, there are a few interesting ones. From an operator perspective, I think you'd look at it and say, it's inspiring to see a business that was able to go from zero to $29 billion in value in the span of six years. But the key thing here is, especially in a market that's so competitive, but it worked and they were able to climb that mountain because they were able to add so much value to their customers and both sides of the customer base, their merchants and consumers. And it was truly differentiated. And I think that making sure you're adding materially better value was, was pretty crucial. Another thing that I would say is a pretty good lesson here from the overall experience is Afterpay, like many disruptive businesses before it, was growing into a gray space as far as regulation. Buy now, pay later. There wasn't a regulation around it. And if you go back and you look at eBay, really anything with e-commerce selling online, you look at Uber, you look at Airbnb. These are all businesses that if the founders had waited for regulators to dream up what their industry could look like in a regular framework, they never would have happened. But these founders went hard at it and tried to take the mindset of, if we create a lot of value for merchants, consumers, all our stakeholders, we're adding value and we can feel good about what we're doing. Eventually, the regulatory regime is going to come in, but we think it's going to go our way. I would say that's proven true thus far. Now, it may sound like a funny thing to say. I'm a bit of a goody two-shoes myself about following rules. But when you look at a business like this, the truth is that it dove into this gray space. There wasn't a clear framework. The framework came around. Then there's the investing angle. And I think there's some interesting lessons and takeaways here where for retail investors, a lot of people listening will be familiar with Magellan's Peter Lynch, the Magellan Fund's Peter Lynch, Fidelity, who was master investor. And something he's often paraphrased around is that you should use, buy what you know. But that's not exactly what he really said. But the spirit of it was, use your experience as a consumer and your professional experience to inform and help you find investing ideas and give you deeper thoughts and perspectives with them. With Afterpay, there were so many retail investors who did very well in Australia, typically millennials, because they knew so many people who used it and they heard about it and they could see the appeal. What's kind of different about that is you compare that to, frankly, a lot of the professional fund managers, professional investors at the time, even despite Afterpay's huge rates of growth, they would be like, look, I just don't get it. I don't see why anybody uses this. With respect, it's because you're a well-to-do fund manager. and You may not see the appeal, but you're not a millennial who makes a good bit less money and is trying to be a little more strategic about their short-term budgeting. You're not their core audience. And I guess the investing lesson there is, yes, you have your own opinions and subjective experiences, 
which are helpful, but you also want to let data drive decisions too. And so in that scenario, while fund manager could have looked at it and said, or any investor, maybe I don't use this, or maybe it's not for me, but if they're growing 800% year on year, clearly there's an audience to this and they're adding value. Yeah, it's such a fascinating story in so many different respects coming out of Australia, how people looked at it, how people didn't fully understand it, and yet how much of a force it's become. I really enjoyed this today, Joe. So thank you so much for uh, breaking down Afterpay. Thanks, Jesse. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 